And I think we're going to go from one um, set of complications to, to another, which is the issue of um, co-infections, from comorbidities to co-infections. And the next section is going to be led by my co-chair, Dr. Sag, and Dr. Connie Benson, who you met earlier. So over to you. Okay, so um, Mike, are you going to be joining me or do you want me to just take over? Why don't you, yeah, why don't you just uh, run through it and we'll comment together and go from there. Great. So uh, thank you, everybody. Our next section, we're going to be talking about two uh, emerging infections in people with HIV that have achieved a great deal of notoriety, I guess I'll say. Um, during the last year or more. And these are uh, MPOX and COVID-19. So I'm going to jump right into a case presentation to highlight several uh, additions to our guidelines related to MPOX. And I'll ask my fellow panelists to address some of the issues here. So this is a 30-year-old man who presents with new lesions on his buttocks, groin, back, and face. His uh, background is uh, as a man who has sex with men. He's febrile. He has had several different sexual partners in the last four weeks. His HIV RNA level is 28,000 copies per ml off antiretroviral therapy. He's not been taking his medications. And CD4 cell count is 250 and his urine drug screen was positive for methamphetamines. So in addition to screening for uh, sexually transmitted infections, which of the following would you also do for this gentleman? And here are the choices for the audience. I can see we left that phone of friend in there, Mike, on the, on the ARS question, even though I took it off the slide. Okay, okay, so let's see what people from the audience would do. And looks like everyone's pretty, uh, pretty much up to speed with what current recommendations might suggest. How about our audience? What would you do in this, or our panelists? What would you do in this situation? Well, I still see 3% would phone a friend, and there's nothing wrong with that, especially if you aren't sure. Um, so what do, what do folks think about, are you using uh, ticoveramat in your practice, and, uh, and how is that going overall? Well, you know, Mike, uh, what I would act, like to add here is also, if you're in a site that has an ACDG site, I would love to at least consider thinking about whether the patient can enroll in the stump study because we really need clinical trial data to know, you know, whether this drug truly works and how it works. And I think at least, you know, this is a patient that probably would qualify for, for the open access to the drug. And I think it's a good way to do it, but at least consider a clinical trial. We need more information on the, on the value of tecoviramat in patients with, uh, with, uh, with monkeypox, mpox. Yeah, to, to follow up on that, uh, Carlos, actually the FDA and the CDC have now released guidance that it really is before someone starts ticoviramat is to look and see if you can get into stop. Yeah, um, I agree. Yeah. One, one thing that it will do is it'll save you filling out a lot of paperwork because it's, for me, 45 minutes to an hour just to get the uh, 
EUA version of uh, Tika Veramat. And, and um, what's coming soon in that regard is um, even for sites that don't have aren't physically near an ACTG site or other STOM site, um, there's going to be a remote option for people to enroll remotely. And so that is coming very, very soon. Um, mm -hmm. Maybe I'll just add, this is the kind of person, maybe remind me, Dr. Benson, the CD4 count is, is low, is that not right? Um, 280. Yeah, um, I'm sorry, 280 or what was the CD4 count? Yeah, 250. I, I can't go back on well, my slides. Um, that's okay, but not on ART, is that right? Not on ART, but this is the group that um, can get into really serious trouble with um, with monkeypox. Uh, there was a, some evidence that I think Dr. Benson will, will highlight around people hospitalized with mpox, and, and many of those individuals had advanced HIV, very low CD4 counts, or poorly controlled HIV. And so as was said by Dr. Lorio, this person would certainly qualify for open label ticovirumab through STOP or EIND um, ticovirumab. The resistance issue is one I think might be worth just touching on. Um, the reason why people don't want indiscriminate use of ticovirumab in immunocompetent people, where we just don't know yet if it works, is there have been some cases now reported of ticovirumab resistance. I will say those are in immunosuppressed individuals, but we think that this um, virus, monkeypox virus, mpox virus, has a, a low barrier to resistance. So uh, that's why I think that trial is so important. But for an immunosuppressed person, absolutely, we give it. That's a great point. And I would weigh in just briefly by saying, don't minimize that STI screening because the last person I saw who came in looking like this had syphilis mm -hmm. and not monkeypox. Oh, we've had both. Yeah, they can definitely have both. And, you know, we also see people who just have not had STI screening in addition to screening for monkeypox. And so really important to screen for all of that. Great. Okay, let's move on. I think the other important point, it was made at the beginning of the choices of uh, questions, but just that the uh, the co-infection with other sexually transmitted infections in, among people with MPOX um, certainly is a confounder in, in management and just the, the point ma being made here that there's a high um, concordance of both other STIs and HIV or and MPOX in this um, population. And so the, the need for screening for other STIs is also important. This is the study that Dr. Gandhi was highlighting, um, looking at more than 27,000 MPOX cases in the US. And those who required hospitalization were people who had HIV, who were not on antiretroviral therapy, and who had low CD4 cell counts. And those were the risk factors associated or contributing factors associated with the need for hospitalization and perhaps um, increased mortality associated with or as a contributing factor with MPOX. Um, I also just wanted to highlight this uh, slide. Um, also, Dr. Gandhi referred to this, but um, near coming anywhere near you is potentially the remote option to uh, enroll patients in this study. It's a randomized clinical trial looking at uh, two-to-one randomization with drug versus placebo for 14 days. 
and those who have evidence of disease progression after five days can receive uh, tecoviramet if they're randomized to placebo at the beginning of the trial. And uh, if they are at higher risk for more severe disease because of age or their history, as we've just highlighted, they will be assigned directly to receive open-label ticoviramet. So we're hoping to get this study underway or get this study completed quickly. These are the IAS uh, USA recommendations, just to highlight these points for you. Co-infections with other STIs are frequent and so patients should be screened. Um, treatment recommendations are evolving, but those who are at high risk for progression should receive ticoviramet and those who've had a known exposure, the Geneos vaccine, which is a smallpox and monkeypox vaccine, live non-replicating um, version of the vaccine should be administered to asymptomatic contacts, ideally within four days, but up to 14 days after exposure. And for those individuals who are candidates for this, um, primary uh, vaccination with two doses given 28 days apart is recommended for high-risk individuals. Um, so let's move on to our next case presentation. This is a 65-year-old male who presents with low-grade fever, cough, headache, and sore throat for two days. He's got a rapid COVID-19 test, which was positive at home, and a rapid influenza test that was negative. He's fully suppressed on ART with an HIV RNA of less than 20 copies. His CD4 count is 560. He is a smoker, and his oxygenation is reasonably good with 94 to 95% on room air. And these are his antiretroviral drugs. He's on dolutegravir and lamivudine, fixed dose combination, and he's on rosuvastatin. So let's see what um, our audience thinks about what you would do to treat this gentleman. And here are the choices. We have six to choose from here. How would you? How would you treat his SARS-CoV-2 infection? Mike, I miss your uh, music here. I'm, I'm just humming music to myself right now. Thank you. <laughs> okay. All right. So looks like uh, most of our audience would choose to initiate uh, Nermatrelvir, ritonavir. So yeah. how about we open it up to the well, panel? Let's, let's, yeah, let's leave this up for a second because this is really a wonderful panel of answers here, right? The, right. Audience, the audience is extremely aware that answers B and C are no longer on the table because of variants um, with the, uh, the, the BQ1, BQ1.1, uh, et cetera. They don't respond. And I love the fact that F is totally, uh, no one picked it. Yet, there are plenty of patients, I think we've all seen, who are day two of illness, like this guy, who went to an urgent care center and got diagnosed. And then on the way out the door, they gave him a slug of steroids uh, injection in their buttock. And that actually disturbs the uh, 
innate immune response and really can make the patient a lot worse. So tip of the hat to the audience. Uh, this is one, these are wonderful responses. This is, this is a, a case that we're seeing increasingly these days, right? As, as you said, Mike, clearly at number six, you don't want to initiate prednisone. That clearly is wrong. I mean, you could initiate malnupiravir and there's, there's data uh, from the panoramic study and others suggesting that you may get very good results with, with malnupiravir. But again, the mortality is, is, is not a good, a good you know, uh, endpoint to look at anymore. I'd like option number three, the outpatient remdesivir for this patient. You know, the problem is the logistics of give, giving the outpatient remdesivir are not trivial. And a lot of us have trouble implementing that. But I mean, that would be to me probably the most ideal option. Uh, Beptolizumab uh, is not an option anymore because of the current variants in circulation. In fact, the FDA has recommended against his use. Uh, the bamboozumab, same thing. So, so you really don't have two and three. And again, number one it is is an option, but you've got to remember that this person is taking resuvastatin, which you can you can stop and you can avoid the drug interaction. There's there's a very weak drug interaction with dolutegravir that I don't think will worry me much, but I certainly worry about the resuvastatin one. So you could do the 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 your metrovir, uh, yeah. and you could do the malnupiravir or the remdesivir. Yeah, you know the uh, the resuvastatin. I think the recommendation is just to hold it during the time yeah, of the right. and, 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 during, during therapy in five days afterwards. Five days. Now there was an earlier iteration of this question that had carbamazepam and some other things that could not be held and took answer one off the board. And to your point, Carlos, I think uh, answer four, the remdesivir becomes really the best treatment. It's just logistically a challenge because they've got to come in daily for three days, but it really works well. And it's an antiviral drug. And most people think of it as a hospital drug because that's how it was first approved, like on day seven, eight or nine. But that's the horse is out of the barn a lot of times for an antiviral agent in this in this disease state. So really early on, a potent antiviral was really the way to go. Maybe I'll just add, sometimes people wonder about the matrivir-ritonavir, which would be my first choice as it was for other people in the attendance. Um, they wonder about that with HIV medicines. It is actually fine to give nematovir ritonavir with uh, HIV medicines. Um, people sometimes ask about cobacistat or ritonavir. Can you, if you have someone on that for their HIV, can you still give nematovir ritonavir? And you really can. Uh, that very short course, um, five days, is not long enough to really create a substantial problem. You can monitor them for side effects, but not something that you need to take off the table. And, and as uh, Mike said the the logistics of, of remdesivir are not easy, and I think this logistically is a bit easier. If though he was on carbamazepine and all those other drugs um, that you are contraindicated, then then you're stuck. Uh, then you have to either use remdesivir or molnupiravir. Yeah, so I think you've all made uh, many of my talking points for me already, but I just wanted to highlight the issue about. Um, uh, the lack of activity of, uh, of virtually all of the monoclonal antibodies given our current uh, milieu for um, variants. And you can see this is as of November 26th and virtually all of the BA4, BA5 is now gone in most parts of the US and the subvariants of those um, Omicron 
variants are now circulating as the predominant variants and they are not affected by the monoclonal antibodies. So no use for those at all. Um, Dr. Gandhi has already highlighted the issue of continuing ART, including boosted PI regimens during the five days that you're taking the nirmatrelvir, ritonavir, and being on the lookout for other drug-drug interactions. You can use the NIH guidelines and the Liverpool checker for other drug-drug interactions in the context of um, the use of Paxlovid. These are the recommendations that are published in our new guidance for treatment of COVID-19 in people with HIV. And um, obviously uh, those of you who have already commented on this have chosen the uh, right initial option. And we've already addressed most of these points. Um, the only last point to make is that people who recover from severe COVID-19, just as we would with people who are not HIV infected, we should be monitoring our people with HIV for post-acute sequela of SARS-CoV-2. Um, Pax was a, a, a term that people put out there for a while, but it seems like we keep coming back to long COVID, and that's really what we're referring to here. But one point to be made here is that optimizing HIV treatment, in this case, the patient already had pretty good, um, had maximal suppression of his HIV RNA. And, but what you wanna do is make sure that that's the case with your patients who get co-infected with COVID so you can reduce the possibility of any further inflammatory consequences of either HIV or COVID. Um, there's, just a few more points I wanted to make about um, COVID outcomes in people with HIV. And uh, there has been a lot published about the fact that people with HIV may have worse outcomes or more severe disease. And there are probably a number of reasons for these. And they're sort of highlighted in three buckets here. The first is that people with advanced HIV, particularly those with low CD4 counts untreated, may have prolonged replication of SARS-CoV-2, just like any other immunodeficient um, patient population. Comorbidities in people with HIV are at high rates, so they also have risk factors for severe COVID based on other comorbidities like diabetes and cardiovascular disease. And you all are very well aware of the social determinants of health and how they can contribute to more severe COVID disease and also people with HIV are more likely to be represented among racial and ethnic um, underrepresented populations or the poor. And those two are risk factors for worse outcomes with COVID. The other point uh, that's been made in the literature up to this point is the immune response to COVID vaccines in people with HIV. And those who are on antiretroviral therapy with high CD4 counts generally mm -hmm. appear to have a good immune response to vaccines, COVID vaccines included. And this is just one slide from one representative study showing that the antibody response to a, in this case, the AstraZeneca vaccine um, was similar for people with HIV as uh, people without HIV. However, studies have shown that people with low CD4 cell counts or those who are not suppressed on antiretroviral therapy do appear to have 
uh, antibody responses to vaccines, in particular COVID vaccines that may be lower than in the general population. So this is some, again, another plug for maximizing or optimizing antiretroviral therapy. And then the CDC recommendations, although they're continuing to be updated in the context of age and the availability of the bivalent booster, um, COVID vaccine schedules for people with HIV um, and who are not moderately or severely immunosuppressed are the same as in the general population. Or, but if patients are not suppressed on antiretroviral therapy or have low CD4 counts, the vaccination schedule recommended is three doses of primary vaccine, whether it's the Moderna or Pfizer BioNTech primary series, and after at least two months, a bivalent booster. Um, this is, is compatible with exactly what our recommendations were, the IES USA guidelines just published. And I only want to make one more point, and that is the issue about pre-exposure prophylaxis. We left in our guidelines document the comment that if circulating variants are anticipated to be susceptible, you may still consider pre-exposure prophylaxis for those individuals who have untreated HIV infection or a low CD4 count and those not able to be fully vaccinated. However, at this point in time, at least in the US, this is not the case. And so pre-exposure prophylaxis is no longer recommended because of the circulating variant situation. Post-exposure prophylaxis is not recommended for people with HIV because we don't currently have uh, monoclonal antibodies that are effective against currently circulating variants. And so I'll stop my primary um, presentation there just to ask our panelists if they have any additional comments they'd like to make about some of these data, and then we can move into Q&A. My only comment, Connie, would be that there is uh, still a lot of people who are reluctant to prescribe antivirals for COVID. And uh, I hope that the crowd working on HIV is not that crowd, but we have a huge job to do to actually, right now we're seeing an increase in number of COVID cases again in our country. And we really need to be prescribing these drugs and use them appropriately. There's a lot of people out there very concerned about the drug-drug interactions and we need to get over that, understand how to manage them. We've managed them, we've done that with HIV. We're very familiar with the use of ritonavir and we should really be leaders in this area, educate others about the importance of rapid diagnosis and, and treatment of COVID as a way to decrease you know, mortality, which we're still seeing primarily in people over the age of 65. That's an important point. And, and I would just add that there are data that uh, these drugs are being severely underutilized. And I think some of it is because of access to care and some of it is because of what we just heard. So. Let, me, let me direct a question to Dr. Lehman, if I could. Uh, Clara, uh, welcome, you're in Germany. Uh, how are, how are things going with COVID and are you all using a lot of antivirals during uh, the outbreak? Well, it's uh, the same situation as you just mentioned also. So we have an increase also of the cases here in Germany. And um, so doctors, physicians are very reluctant to, to prescribe the um, the Paxlovid, and uh, I always have a lot of discussions because I don't understand why, why they don't use it. 
Um, and as you just mentioned, like HIV specialists, they are they're used to it, and so they prescribe it. Um, and so we we are trying to convince everybody to use it because I think it's it's really it's a, it's a drug which is working so well, and we have so good results within a few days. So I don't understand why why we have this, yeah. This idea, which is really not true, but it's the same. I think it's everywhere almost the same. Yeah, this is yeah. the same group that throws a lot of antibiotics at, at uh, otitis media when most of it's viral. So somehow it's they don't like treating viral infections or not treating them. Uh, One point that gets us discussed a lot is whether vaccinated people should um, receive nematavir, ritonavir. And I wonder if the panel wants to comment on their thinking on that. Um, in this case, I think we didn't uh, highlight the vaccination status. He is 65 years old, which I think is very important to mention. But um, we can either mention some data, but I'm curious uh, what people think on the panel on uh, vaccinated people and nematavir The data that unambiguously showed that the drug works was in unvaccinated people. And we can get to perhaps some observational data that that is relevant, but comments from the panel on that topic? There's a fairly recent study from a large healthcare system looking exactly at vaccinated individuals. And even in vaccinated individuals where the mortality is exceedingly low, you still had a benefit in mortality in people that had been vaccinated. So the answer to that question is yes, especially in people over the age of 60, 65, absolutely, you need to, you should treat those individuals. I agree. I mean, was and also... I would add to uh, what, oh, sorry, go ahead. I, I, I also wanted to say this: uh, the new uh, VA study that came out, you know, that showed the repetitive cumulative uh, infections are really not very good. So I think, and these are of course quite uh, people at risk and so on. But I think it's just logical to use an antiviral early on in these people. Yeah, one thing I would like to add to that: I agree with Fresh that the, the absolute risk reduction is now lower in. The unvaccinated, not only because uh, in the vaccinated, uh, the previously infected that most of us are now, but I think it was also important to consider that there just might be other benefits to treatment uh, than the, uh, the prevention of severe disease. There is now beginning to be some considerations that the PASC may be uh, a, 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 a lingering effect of, uh, of, of uh, not suppressing the virus initially. So it would be important to still take seriously the fact that not just because people don't die from COVID, they see my benefit from treatment. If not now, maybe later. So let me ask Raj, the, uh, I know you've generated some data about this, sir. And what about... Um, Paxlovid rebound, is that more common in people with HIV if you decide to go ahead and treat yeah. um, five days of therapy? What are you seeing in your groups? And I'll ask our, our uh, international colleagues the same question about rebound. Yeah. So you're right. Rebound often gets mentioned as a reason why some people either don't prescribe Paxlovid or, or don't take Paxlovid. And I think it's important to say that there are data now that even in individuals who don't get any therapy. Um, there was a study that the AC that called Active Two, where this was looked at in the placebo arm. Even in those individuals, symptomatic rebound after just getting COVID after a placebo was about twenty five percent, and then viral rebound in that study was about ten percent. Actually, Dr. Smith, who's on the panel, can comment. But 
So symptomatic rebound, even without any intervention, is, is very, very common. And so I think one important point to make to our colleagues, but also to our patients, is that um, rebound is part of the natural history, part of what happens with, with COVID, or it can be. It, it's not. In fact, it's quite common. Um, yeah. So I, I think that's an important point. But maybe, David, you want to comment? Yeah, almost 40% of people who got placebo reported having symptomatic rebound after feeling completely better in two days. But even the Paxlovid rebound, the Paxlovid rebound is uh, relatively uncommon with the symptoms and the virus coming back, but it yeah. does happen. Mm -hmm. um, but I don't think it should deter people from getting treated. And what I would like to see done is a five-day versus 10-day comparison of nematavir ritonavir. And I think those studies are belatedly, you know, too, uh, getting started they're finally getting started. I wish they had done them earlier, but that is the type of data that we, you know, do. Yeah, I wish they had done that earlier too. Yeah, so. You know, I'd, I'd make one point about rebound, and that is when people have a symptomatic rebound, they should test again. Uh, and if, if they are positive, then they continue to be infectious. And so people sometimes feel, well, you know, I'm over it. I tested negative and, you know, now I have a cold and now I have. So, you know, people are actually going back out into the world with their cold, which is actually COVID. And they have viral loads that are high enough uh, to transmit to other people. So that I think is important to just uh, educate people that you need to test if you're having rebounding symptoms. Yeah, well, I'm I'm in the category of Tony Fauci. I took my five days. I got better. I tested. I got sick again three days after I stopped, and I tested again, and it was positive. And so, uh, I'm in that. They're in good company. <laughs> yeah. So um, there's there a, a few more questions before we run out of time. Yeah. I don't want to spend it do, all on COVID, but maybe we do let monkeypox questions. Yeah. Yeah. Let's monkey get pox. to a couple of the monkeypox questions from our audience. So, Mike, you said you were going to answer the first one for people with mpox and who test positive for HIV. What treatment should you start first, and should you worry about drug interactions? Well, there, there are potential drug interactions, uh, but they're not meaningful. I don't, I don't think we have to worry a lot about them. It's a little bit of change in, in uh, the PK for a few of the drugs. So I, I don't think that's a consideration. But for me, I would I would think about it much like uh, almost JC virus, where you, you want to get the treatment. Well, JC, we don't have any great treatment for, but you want to get the treatment for the uh, MPOX on board right away. And then I think, depending on how they're doing, I would start the ARV therapy within the next couple of days, depending on how they're doing. I don't know what other people feel. There's no guidelines on this. But but I think just biologically, uh, they have a weakened immune system because high levels of HIV are circulating. And unless we, until we get that to come down, the virus, the HIV is really responsible for a lot of the immunosuppression with advanced HIV, it's, we think CD4 count, but it's really the virus and you get it down. So I would, I don't know that I'd advocate starting at the same time, although I don't think that's a bad idea, um, just for uh, tolerance and making sure that we get them uh, under control, get the uh, ticovirumat on first and then add the ARV soon after. And how about side effects related to MPOX vaccines? Anybody want to take that one? Well, 
uh, I can let others, I don't know if Davey, you might have more experience than I do, but generally speaking, it's mostly a lot of local reaction. And it's almost like you can see people at a distance who have had it because they have that little hyper, small hyperpigmented area right on their forearm. Um, Davey, what do you, what do you, what would you say about all this? Yeah, no, I agree completely. The one thing that I would highlight that we didn't talk about is that some people think that getting that little shot that you can see creates a lot of stigma around um, getting the shot. And that's something that is important to talk about with so, their patients, I think. Yeah, and I think it's really important that that sometimes is keeping people from getting their second booster uh, or their, their second shot. And uh, what has been uh, started is the practice of using the intradermal injection on the back so that it's not on the forearm where it's really visible. And that seems to be much more acceptable to people. Maybe I can just comment because in, in Germany, we don't do the intradermal injections. We uh, do the subcutaneous uh, injection. And I, so I think it's, much easier also for the um, tolerability. And so we discussed a lot because we were really, we didn't have a lot of, uh, didn't have enough uh, vaccination shots for all people. Uh, and, but then we decided, no, no, we will just keep on and going to do the subcutaneous uh, vaccination. So, uh, and, and we have less side effects. And, you know, I think we have enough vaccine here in the US now that people could get sub Q if they wanted it, but uh, so options are important. I want to thank all of the panelists and all of the uh, presenters for a really terrific um, session and also, also all of the attendees. Your questions were fantastic and really kept us, um, you know, with a nice back and forth. So thank you for that. We're going to take a short break now and uh, invite people to come back um, in about 15 minutes. That's going to be 310 Eastern time, 1210 Pacific time, um, and please join us. And we're going to pick up where we left off. We're going to talk about one and how to switch, a particularly important topic. We're going to get some practical tips on uh, substance use disorder, and then we're going to wrap it up with HIV prevention. So see you all in about a little less than 15 minutes. Take care. <laughs>